Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Well, we begin with a look at the government's plans to ease the lockdown restrictions and a little boost they're getting today from the UK Health Authority clearing an antibody test from the pharma company Roche. These tests can identify people who previously had the virus, so they may now have a degree of immunity. But what we don't know is whether having those antibodies mean that immunity is going to be long lasting. So it's not necessarily a carte blanche, Roger. No, I mean, the, the, the whole medical evidence about immunity is at least questionable right now. But meanwhile, of course, Boris Johnson is facing increasing pressure over his handling of the whole pandemic. Uh, this week's Prime Minister's questions, he was quizzed by Keir Starmer over the spread of the disease in care homes, where more than 8,000 deaths have been attributed to the virus. The Prime Minister has been criticised for failing to provide the sector with adequate funding and personal protective equipment for staff. Well, let me pick up on that point now with our guest today. Uh, Selene Saxby, who's Conservative MP for North Devon. Welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Uh, let me kick off by asking you, the homes in your area, the care homes in your area, have they had all the help and support they've needed during this crisis? Um, yes, I actually joined a call with them several weeks ago and um, heard any concerns. But in the main, they've been very well supported. The feedback I've had, and I keep going back and checking, is everyone OK? Um, we have unfortunately had a couple of care homes which have had outbreaks within them. Um, and I know, uh, certainly for the first one, it was um, you know, a very difficult experience for them and there were some concerns. But as soon as it was flagged that they, they had an issue, there was extra help went in, extra staff, um, all the equipment. We haven't had a problem at all here in North Devon with um, PPE. Um, obviously, there are isolated instances where certain bits perhaps aren't here at exactly the right time. But there's a lot of sharing between different um sectors up here in North Devon. The council have done a great job with their supply line and we have an independent hub of PPE up here. So I think our, certainly up here, our social care and care sector um, have been very well supported and that's the feedback that I've had back from them. More broadly, though, Selene, I, I mean, the, we had the Prime Minister speaking yesterday about this very subject and saying that the situation had been bad in care homes. Do you not think a lot more should have been done, done earlier to save lives? We've had instances where there's been no testing going on. I'm looking at a, a, a Glasgow care home where one in four residents died of COVID-19. The staff were not tested. Surely this is the sort of thing that could have been precipitated. I think one of the challenges with the whole social care sector and particularly care homes is a lot of them are independently run as private businesses. And therefore, some of the responses are obviously actually down to the individual care homes as to what has happened and at what point. Um, and, you know, whilst recognising there have obviously been concerns about testing, 
And again, I can obviously only really speak for my, my own constituency, where I know that there is plenty of testing now available, um, and all care home staff can access the NHS and testing in the centre of Barnstable. So there is testing here, but um, recognise a lot of these are down to individual care homes. And I hope as we move out of this, that we'll, we will be able to actually properly look at social care across the United Kingdom. But it is an area of, of concern today. I mean, ministers were warned two years ago, according to a report in The Guardian, of care homes' exposure to potential pandemics. I mean, looking back now, and obviously I take on board, it's easy to have hindsight in these matters, but shouldn't there have been more done earlier? Um, I don't think any nation in the world has been particularly well prepared for a pandemic. And obviously, care homes, when you have a virus that is particularly aggressive and, and has very poor outcomes for the very elderly and vulnerable, then the care home environment is going to be far more risky than others. And I think, you know, if you were to look at the converse, um, if this virus was very poor for small children and affected them more than the elderly, suddenly it wouldn't have been care homes we were worried about, it would have been schools. And so I think, you know, this is a new virus, we're still learning a lot about it. And unfortunately, with this virus, it is the elderly and those people with underlying health conditions that are most susceptible to um, the virus and unfortunately in a care home environment those are the type of people who are all living in in one place. Well you, you mentioned schools let's talk about those as a former teacher yourself would you feel safe going back into a classroom now? Yes is the short answer. Um, I think, it's, it, again, it's, um, you know, and I have had a conversation with head teachers up, up here and they felt they've been very well supported from the Department of Education and the local councils, giving them the information that they need to support their staff through this. And I recognise people are concerned and it is a, you know, a frightening situation for people to be in. But there is um, a lot of information coming through. There's testing coming through for the staff and children. There is the track and trace app coming through before the children are going back to school. Um, so there is a lot more still to come in the next couple of weeks before the children are back in the classroom in the main. And schools have been open throughout this. So well, yes, they have, but for, for much... Throughout the pandemic. But for much smaller groups of children, I mean, this is a different thing when you have far more children in the classroom. And, and Selene, I mean, many of your uh, former colleagues, of course, uh, in unions, teaching unions, have been expressing grave concern. I take it on board that you're, you've been talking to te teachers, head teachers, perhaps, who, who think it's going to work. But an awful lot of your former colleagues are extremely frightened by this. Can you, can you understand that? And of course, uh, I think it's understandable for everyone in society to have an element of fear. You know, this is an unknown situation and we all have our own different risks with regards to this virus. And obviously, for those coll former colleagues who are that much older, the risk of the virus is significantly greater than a, you know, a young teacher in a teaching environment. The, the vi virus behaves differently for different people. And so I do understand the concerns, um, but I also recognise that there is an awful lot of work being done to support teachers. And although there are more children going back, it's only a phased return. We're not suggesting that the full school is going to arrive on the 1st of June. Um, and the experience has gone very well in Denmark. And I think we do need to look and sort of learn from other countries where they have been able to slowly start reopening schools. What about the children who are perhaps less able or have less attention at home or who risk falling between the gaps? How do we make sure that they don't fall behind even more when many of their peers perhaps would have had private tutoring online during this time and are managing to get even more of an advantage? And I think that is 
actually why it's so important that if we can get children back to schools, we do, because those are the children that you're quite right, need to get back into the classroom and get the extra support in the classroom environment. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so important that we find a way to reopen schools as safely and quickly as possible. One of the main areas of concern, I guess, for your constituents is tourism. North Devon's a tourist uh, area in normal uh, in normal times. Of course, we're not in normal times. Um, do you want tourists to come to North Devon now? If not, when should they start? And, and isn't it vital for your economy? It is vital for our economy, and it's a very difficult issue. Um, and it, it really is a very hot topic in North Devon at the present time. Um, and I think the general feeling here is now is not the right time for masses of tourists to come back, uh, not least of which because the car parks aren't open, public toilets aren't open, there's nowhere to go and eat. <laughs> so it's not the tourist experience that people would have had last summer if they'd come to visit us. Um, so there's an awful lot of steps that we need to take before we're in a position for tourism to reopen. Um, and with social distancing, it's not as viable for a lot of us small tourism businesses here as it would be in previous years. Um, so I think, you know, the, the unlock we've seen so far is just about extra exercise. It's not about going on holiday. And I very much hope people mm. will recognise that heading into this weekend. And if you are going outside to exercise, fantastic. But please don't travel to a tourist spot, either here or other places, expecting everything to be yeah. open. Because car parks that are open here have got only a third to a half of the normal spaces available. Right. And, and what about Brexit looking ahead? Isn't it about time we start thinking about extending the talks? Otherwise, we're risking a no-deal exit come the end of the year. Well, we've already got a deal. so And we're certainly not going to be having a no-deal exit. The deal is already done. And um, I see no reason why those talks can't continue virtually. The rest of us are managing to work from home. And, um, you know, government is, is still working. And civil servants are still working and I very much hope that the trade talks will progress um, and that we can sort of look to negotiate perhaps a different deal but we are not leaving with, without a deal we have a deal. Well you, you say there's a deal but in fact what's going on is both sides seem to be a long way apart at this point and inevitably there has been delay because people have got ill uh, some of the leaders of the negotiations so we could get to a point where there's no extension no extension no agreement and a no deal. No, but we already have a deal. So we are le we have left the European Union and uh, we will be leaving on the, the terms that we have at the end of the year. What we're now talking about is different trade arrangements and, and trade deals that we might have a slightly different deal at the end of the year. But, um, you know, the, the trade deal is already, the, a trade deal is already in place. Whether it, it moves again um, is, is down to the negotiations. Well, with respect, it's not a trade deal per se. It is, as you say, a series of, of talks going on. If we left now, there would be de facto no deal. No, there is a deal. We would just leave on um, World, Tra on, um, World, sorry, the, uh, the World Trade Terms. We, we would just um, you know, tr trade with other nations the same way as those without specific trade deals do now. But that, for all intents and purposes, is not a deal, and it means a huge economic hit at the same time when we're already suffering as a result of coronavirus. Can we really afford to do that to our people? And I, I have every confidence in the negotiations that are going on and that also that there will be elements of deals. I'm aware that there are talks going on now, and um, I, I remain confident that we will come out with... Um, the right solution. We're certainly not going to be risking the whole economy of the country. But I do think from the coronavirus, things that we have obviously learned is that we do need to be securing up um, our supply and 
hopefully being a, a lot more buying British and um, looking after ourselves within our own country, so to speak. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at some of the other news in the world of politics. We start with English councils feeling they'll have to make budget cuts of 20% and face a social care funding shortfall. Labour claims local authorities are facing a £10 billion black hole as they encounter spiralling costs amid the coronavirus lockdown. The analysis has been seen by The Guardian, which says cuts of up to 21% could be needed to balance the books. Community Secretary Robert Jenrick announced earlier this week that a further £600 million would be given to social care on top of 3.2 billion given to councils in the last two months but it raises questions around the social care budget it's the big thing no one really wants to talk about and of course if you're talking about councils we could be talking about council tax and i don't want to suggest anything but it's one way of raising revenue roger Mm, and not a particularly popular one, as we know. Uh, meanwhile, the British Chambers of Commerce have been keeping an eye on the way in which business is working here. And they now say most companies could restart their business with up to three weeks' notice. They've, in a survey, they found that firms are confident of implementing social distancing measures or remote workings. And three out of five said they could stagger arrival times. However, one in five said such restrictions are not applicable to their business. The BCC also found 70% of the 600 businesses surveyed had furloughed staff, showing how the job retention scheme had prevented redundancies. Hmm, one in five. That is a big statistic, and I think uh, really tells you what you need to know about that story. Meanwhile, the Independence editorial says it's not right for MPs to rush back to Westminster. We had the leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees, remark saying he wanted an end to remote working, a proper return to Parliament, ever the traditionalists. Uh, the editorial calls him a sort of living parliamentary fossil uh, and says there's no doubt that he would like to do away with the stripy tape across the carpets, tear down the incongruous giant monitors struck like carbuncles around Pugin's neo-gothic masterpiece referring to the interior of the house of commons but the editorial disagrees saying mps should set an example in the efforts to get the pandemic under control and indeed in that guidance we got from the government earlier this week there were talks of mps leading the way and moving back to their workplace so we'll have to see just how long it is until we can all get off zoom and back into the House of Commons, of course, observing proper social distancing. Inevitably, inevitably. Meanwhile, also, of course, if people are coming back to work, that could mean, of course, people going back into the city of London, where indeed you are today. So, uh, London's financial district preparing for office workers to return from lockdown by proposing the temporary closure of some roads. The City of London Corporation is considering one-way pedestrian walkways and timed road closures aimed at managing commuter flow in an area that employs some 520,000 people. And that's even as the official UK government advice remains urging commuters to stay off trains and buses. Corporation says some street changes are needed to provide additional space for people walking and cycling, while main roads in the city may be closed to motor vehicles between 7 in the morning and 7 in the evening. 
Mm, yeah, I braved it in today. It was just me and a fox in the middle of London at 5am. A very desolate atmosphere. It makes a change from fat cats anyway. Uh, but let's carry on the conversation about London. Transport for London planning to restore the majority of tube and bus services by next week. But social distancing rules mean that capacity will be reduced to around 15%. So with the first wave of people heading back to work this week, what does it mean for the future of transport in London and, of course, Britain's other major cities. Well, joining us now to discuss this is Simon Jeffrey, policy officer at the Centre for Cities. Simon, there's a lot of talk about walking and cycling, and the government is saying it wants to boost both. How big a part is this going to ch- play in the post-coronavirus commuting world? Are we all going to be hopping on two wheels instead of the tube? Well, we have to be clear that for some people, yes, that is going to be the case, um, and it's going to be very much focused in cities like London, but you know the 15% capacity of public transport really needs to ensure that those people that can only use public transport, those people in probably outlying areas where the distances are too far to walk and cycle, uh, are doing so. But yeah, the people within kind of 10 kilometres, I think you know if you're going to have a, a system where people can get into the city centre and can get to those jobs, and you have a public transport system at 15%, you are going to need you know potentially. Uh, a million or more people finding an alternative way to get into the office, um, and that would be by cycling and walking. I think that's why TfL, you know, are really focusing their efforts on improving the, the cycle facilities and the, the lanes in those inner parts uh, of the city where you know the propensity to cycle because the distances are a bit shorter um, are, are that much higher. And uh, you know, if you don't do that, then it's going to have to be a lot more people staying at home. A million people, Simon, is that really feasible? Uh, I think it is a big ask. I think if you're looking at uh, London at the moment, it's about 10% of people in central London um, walk or cycle into work. But, you know, the question of whether it's feasible and it goes up to whether that's 30 or 40% is a question of, well, is the restrictions on public transport going to be enforced and are businesses going to reopen? Because fundamentally, they are, you either get to work by not public transport and it's not going to be able to drive because congestion is already an issue and there's not parking space in central London to, to deal with people driving in or they don't go to work. So it's, you know, it's a question of uh, just pure practicality rather than feasibility. Yeah, and I mean, well, obviously we're talking about more than London, we're talking about other cities as well and there's already congestion charge in London to uh, discourage people from being in London on their in their cars. Um in other cities, is that going to be more likely to be introduced where it doesn't exist already? Is that a way forward? Yeah, I think congestion charge was something that was needed already in a lot of cities. You think Manchester, Birmingham, um, Bristol, Leeds, absolutely crucial uh, economic centres, but being choked by uh, too much car traffic. They were needed before. And if we're going to see a situation now where more people are likely to drive, then you know, the congestion costs that are imposed on the city, on workers, the ability of people to access jobs, you know, the ability of companies to, to move things around uh, efficiently, is going to be even heavier. So we really need to ensure that if we're going to make our cities recover, we need to ensure that they don't get choked off by cars. I think that becomes even more true if you think about congestion. More cycle space is going to reduce the supply of road space and congestion will go up even with the same amount of traffic if you don't reduce the demand for that space which is what a congestion charge is really effective at doing just one more question about london simon before we broaden out a bit tfl 
burning through cash at the moment. The buses are effectively free because no one is being told to touch in. Barely anyone's using the tube. Uh, reportedly expecting a £4 billion loss as a result of coronavirus. This has to come from somewhere. Not all of it in all likelihood can come from central government. Are we going to see fair rises here? Is the public going to have to pay for the majority of this, do you think? Um, well, yeah, the public is definitely going to pay for it at some point. London is going to need help from national government. It's crucial. You look at Manchester with the Metrolink and uh, other major and rail networks across countries, they've essentially been nationalised. If you look at the bus networks, they've essentially been nationalised. They're being run um, by public uh, funding. London needs the same. I don't think London should be separated. And actually, if you go back to London's reliance on public transport and its crucial role in the economy, then it needs that bailout. Fares going up will probably be an element, I would assume, um, which is you know, some of the issues that TfL was facing before this crisis were partially affected by not having fares going up over the last four years, which has sort of cumulatively hit £640 million um, in their annual budget. So it is going to have to come out of um, consumer fares, but we, you know, we really don't want to make sure that the costs of dealing with coronavirus aren't even heaped even more on people that, that rely on public transport. Simon, let's explore other parts of the country and just talk in general terms. I mean, which parts of the country do you think are going to be most affected by this first wave of people returning to work? I mean, give us a picture of it geographically. Yeah, well, it's it's really those big cities because in most of the country, people drive to work. So, you know, the issues of public transport capacity going up or down are largely irrelevant. Even in cities like Telford, you're only talking about 5% of people. It's just not, it's not going to be a major concern um, for those economies. But once you get into places like Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, um, and Edinburgh, Glasgow, Liverpool, you're talking sort of 20% of people on all commutes, but you could probably double those numbers if you think about getting to the city centre. And those are the routes that are going to have you know, the most congested trains where the issue of 15% capacity is going to be a real problem because you know, obviously other parts of the network, they don't run full. So you know, it's much less of an issue, but it really is focused on those cities and in terms of economics, those successful cities, which are drawing lots of people in to good jobs, which is, you know, creates these issues of congestion that public transport solves. And if we can't have transport solve it anymore, then we can't really get the benefits of that uh, economic concentration in cities. And what trends are you seeing in terms of the parts of the country where people are actually able to return to work, perhaps because of the sort of work that they do? Yeah, I mean, you, you can really see a clear difference that it is in Hull, for example, um, a city that, that we look at, much lower impact on people being in the workplace. Looking at the Google mobility trends, talking about 50% of people um, have be, have stayed at home compared to, you're talking sort of nearly 70, 75% in places like London and Reading, which is a clear signal the different sectors of the economy that um, are dominant in these areas and it's not just the fact that people can work from home it also means that you know in london in city centers those kind of local services shops um that might you know serve people when they're in the city you know food especially which can reopen now just there aren't the people there to use that so it has a sort of knock-on impact but yeah places with higher levels of manufacturing high levels of distribution um those can't be done remotely and we've seen uh, a much smaller drop off in the amount of people going to work in those places Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.